Welcome to Craig's Colorado Corner, taking on the toughest issues of our times, cornering the Colorado market on political and legal conversations. Craig Silverman, former Denver prosecutor, sets the table for smart panelists. Ladies and gentlemen, Craig's Colorado Corner. Hey, welcome to the second edition of Craig's Colorado Corner, dedicated to covering the prosecutions of Donald J. Trump. This week, my most impactful law school professor, Albert Alshuler, learn all about him, episode 110. He is an esteemed Harvard Law-trained lawyer who's taught at Texas, CU, and now he's emeritus at the University of Chicago, where he was on a first-name basis with a guy named Barack Obama. Next, we have Quentin Young, who has Colorado Newsline. Quentin learned his profession a lot of places, most especially at the Boulder Daily Camera for a long time running that show. Now he's compiling a list of Colorado insurrectionists. Without further ado, I give you Craig's Colorado Corner. He's the best lawyer I know because he's my lawyer. He's Michael Bailey. I think you pioneered this mobile estate planning, and lots of lawyers are doing it now. And boy, are your clients happy and satisfied. It's convenient for the client. It certainly is fun to be able to go visit people where they are, whether it's at your house or at one of the offices, just to make it more convenient for you. And then it's more fun for me because I get to go out and about and meet people all over the place and help them out. What's the website, Michael? It is mobileestateplanning.com. What's the best phone number to call? 720-394-6887 is my direct line. Michael Bailey. That's our lawyer. Trish loves him. I do too. Thanks, Michael. You're welcome, Craig. Craig's Colorado Corner is open. My goodness, we have two fantastic panelists. The first question goes to Professor Albert Al Schuler, who has authored a tremendous piece about the key witness, the guy who was with. Donald J. Trump, nearly all the relevant time around January 6th. His name's Mark Meadows. Professor Al Schuler, tell us about your article and then tell us what you make of the new development that Meadows has cooperated a little more, identified that there was a four-page classified attack Iran document on the couch. It was part of the manuscript until he took it out. Then He also says he's unaware of Trump declassifying any of this stuff. What do you make of it all? Well, I don't know what to make of it. I mean, I I saw this uh, indictment, the federal indictment uh, about January 6th that came out on August 1st, and it did not name Mark Meadows as a uh, co-conspirator, which was surprising. I mean, it didn't name anybody, but it it listed uh, five co-conspirators, and he wasn't plainly wasn't one of them. So that seemed to me to be a very clear sign that he must be cooperating. They must be planning to indict these uh, other co-conspirators, and they've made some deal with him. But then uh, it seems now I don't know what to think. I mean, it's true that the indictment doesn't recite much evidence that seems to come from Meadows. They have him, they apparently have him saying, I, I, after I went down to Georgia to watch him counting absentee ballots, I told the president uh, that they were doing a wonderful job and they would certainly find fraud if there was any, uh, whereupon Donald Trump the next day says that they're covering up all kinds of fraud and they're horrible people. Um, so he seems to have supplied some information, um, but you'd expect a, a lot more than that if he were really cooperating. I mean, he's bounced around a lot. He initially cooperated with the January 6th committee, sent him a lot of uh, a lot of uh, documents. Uh, then then uh, he started negotiating with them, making all kinds of outlandish proposals. At one point, he was agreed, agreed to appear for 
uh, an interview and then the day before canceled it and uh, apparently succeeded in keeping the uh, the public hearings from happening for for a while so he succeeded in getting the but then he was cited for contempt by congress the Justice Department refused to prosecute him, even though Congress had, had requested it. He apparently went down to Georgia. He fought appearing before the Georgia grand jury, but he did it. He was ordered to appear. He did appear. Apparently, I mean, we're not supposed to know anything about what happened in that proceeding, but but the uh, foreman, foreman uh, person of the, of the grand jury talked to the press and said he didn't tell us anything. I asked him, um, do you have a Twitter account? He said, I plead the fifth. Uh, so I, I, you suspect maybe he's still playing games. Uh, I mean, this today's today's development is uh, he's looking like he's not in Donald Trump's uh, pocket. He's he's revealing some some uh, damaging information about Trump that he did, obviously didn't want to reveal at the time of his book. He, he uh, I mean, he he you, you know the 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 one of the uh, classified documents that. Trump took with him was this so-called war plan that Trump said had been drafted by the uh, Mark Milley, the chairman of the of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and he showed it to the people who were ghostwriting uh, Meadows' uh, uh, memoir. Uh, and then Trump said, "Well, I did, it wasn't really a, a document; it was a newspaper account or something." And uh, well, apparently the uh, special prosecutor has the document. It was a secret document. It was shown. Publicly and and Meadows uh, makes clear that he took that the references to that out of the book himself. Um, so I you know I don't know what's going on. We don't know anything about any any cooperating uh, conspirators at this point. And of course, it's all complicated by the fact that there there are two prosecutions, Georgia and the federal prosecution, and a good defense lawyer is going to want to get protection in both of them. Uh, and uh, they don't seem to be talking to each other very much, as far as we can tell. So uh, that's that's probably more than you wanted to know. I, I think they'll have to start talking now as an old state prosecutor. They didn't want the appearance of, hey, they're cooperating ahead of time. But now with the scheduling and everything else, I don't think there's anything inappropriate. Of course, Team Trump will complain. But they're going to complain about everything anyway, as you well know. What I found fascinating in your column is you cite the amount of money that the Save America PAC or Save Donald Trump's butt PAC sent the way of Mark Meadows. You know, in terms of vacillation, every time he gets a little further away, they throw out a million bucks or so to reel him back in. What's going on? Well, yeah, it's it's. Uh, I mean, it sounds just totally corrupt, doesn't it? The uh, House forms the committee to investigate January sixth and uh, Trump's pack immediately. I mean, Meadows is now working for uh, something. I think it's called the Conservative Partnership Institute or something like that. And uh, Trump's super PAC gives him a million dollars, and it's not a. It's not a. That's like a. They gave a total of a million and a third uh, that that entire half year, and most of it went to this boondoggle operation of Meadows. I mean, some of it obviously wound up in his pocket as salary and and benefits. And apparently, I mean, he also sent nine hundred thousand dollars to uh, uh, pay for uh, uh, Meadows' lawyer, which is you know, it's that's a very complicated <laughs> legal. Yeah, but that's issue. where you come in so handy with your Harvard undergrad, your Harvard law, your association with Dirsch for so long. He was your teacher and then your colleague. And then you knew Barack Obama at Chicago. Heck, if you want to hear name dropping, listen to episode 110. But the bottom line is now George Terwilliger is the lawyer for this guy, Mark Meadows. I've heard good things about Terwilliger. He worked for the Bush uh, administration. Do you know this guy? I've had some contact with him that much. And I think he's, a, I mean, I think he's a terrific lawyer. A straight and shooter. I, and, and I think he's been, I mean, he's been doing, you know, it's it's hard to figure out Mark Meadows. He's one of these guys who seems to say yes to everybody, right? Um he, he waffles. I mean, he's well, That's funny you called, say that. Do you know what his job was? I think a restaurant called Auntie's, probably serving no, waffles. Yeah, no, he was a restaurateur, oh, right? you know, being happy with everybody, throwing the party every night. But 
He's not that educated. He's, he, he's Mr. Conservative. Uh, I, I don't know. I just made him as a MAGA man, and I think the former president did too. Loyal till the end. I, I don't know. Do you think Mark Meadows will flip? Well, there's got to be a grand deal. I have to believe Jack Smith and Terwilliger have something worked out. They're going to make a call to uh, Fannie and say, look, this guy's going to help us. We're going to give him probation. You're going to slap him on the wrist. So am I, as long as he tells the truth. He was right there. There is no more valuable witness, is there, Professor? I don't think so. He seems to have been in the room where it happened, uh, where all of it happened. I mean, the, every part of the scheme. And maybe he didn't go, but he talked about going to the Willard Hotel, right? We know that from yeah, Brian and I mean, isn't it, isn't it amazing we don't know anything about that war room in the Willard Hotel? We haven't had any witnesses. I mean, none, none of the witnesses before the January 6th committee talked about what plotting was going on there. That's the holy grail. I really think it is, but we know a Colorado guy who was there. It's kind of obscure, but that's what Quentin Young is here for because he wrote a beautiful, brave column called Colorado Insurrectionist. We featured it on episode 64. He came back on episode 83 when Heidi Ganahl, the GOP gubernatorial candidate, was at an event, I think at the Rock Church, when one of the MAGA guys uh, threatened to, what, hang Jenna Griswold, something like that. This is where I turn it over to Quentin because... Tell everybody who you know was at the Willard Hotel and has uh, Colorado ties. I'm not sure he's living here anymore. Kind of hope he's moved to Texas. Tell us about Joe Altman. Yeah, Joe Joe Altman was there. I think he's uh, admitted that himself. So this is a uh, podcaster here in Colorado, somebody who's um, you know had a hand in starting the conspiracy theories around. Dominion voting systems, which, um, of course, is a tie between uh, Colorado and the Georgia indictment. Um, and so uh, I believe uh, Joe Altman was there on January 5th, at least. And then the following day on January 6th, 2021, he claims to have been um, had some kind of conversation with uh, high level uh, State Department people in the Trump administration uh, about uh, he, he was fraud. in He was in Washington and at the Willard Hotel. There's a picture of him at the Willard Hotel. Am I right? Yeah, I believe there is. And I think in uh, some of the pictures that have come out of it, you can identify people like, just going off memory here, but I think Roger Stone, maybe Bernie Carrick. Something interesting that came out of the Georgia indictment if you dig real deep down into it, Kathy Latham, somebody named Kathy Latham, also apparently was at the Willard, although it's not clear that she was there at the same time Joe Oatman did was because uh, she might have. It, it makes it if you dig deep into the uh, Georgia indictment and you follow some threads back to some other cases for which there's court filings and depositions concerning Georgia and Coffee County and, and the election system breach there, you'll find that Kathy Latham, who I think she was the head of the GOP in that county, testifies that she was at the quote-unquote war room at the Willard, although it, it makes it sounds like it might have been even earlier. So, you know, I started wondering if there's another potential connection between, direct connection between Georgia and Colorado for uh, reasons like that. Yeah, no doubt. And now Roger Stone is making a video of it all. Professor, you said we can't get into the Willard. Maybe it's part of the Roger Stone documentary, but I saw an interview with the filmmaker on Ari Melber's show. Gosh, Ari Melber hits it out of the park. So many people do. But he said Stone was there, but in a different room. I think maybe the lawyers got together. Rudy, John Eastman with his Colorado connections. By the way, he's not from Colorado. He just came through to see you for a cup of coffee. We wish he was never here, but he was uh, a Colorado employee at this time. But nobody has studied this uh, quite like you, Quentin. And you took the time to uh, study the Colorado characters who 
were there on January 6th, frame by frame, as made possible by ProPublica. And I think it's really relevant now because the mainstream media is saying, hey, look, there's Ken Cheesebro, a Harvard Law lawyer. Sorry, Professor. But he went to Harvard Law School, and there he is in a MAGA hat. And he's walking around with who? Alex Jones. And who studied up on Alex Jones and his movements on January 6th? Quentin Young. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, I mean, that was certainly news to me. And uh, after that news broke, I went back and watched some of the videos that I'd been looking at. I I looked at a particular set of videos. um, I mean, it was an extensive set. um, I think about 500 videos. But certainly, you know, there's many more of that from January 6th, and they're not exhaustive. But I I looked at those videos, that set of videos. I did not pick out uh, Chess Pro, but I mean, that that news just, I think, drives home something that I've found in other cases, and that is that now more than two years after January 6th, we're still learning what happened that day. We're still finding out kind of the gravity and the meaning of that day and, and who was actually there. Another case of that just happened here in Colorado. There, there's a there's a well-known picture of a father and son, and they're bloodied up, and they're, it, it's, it was taken on January 6th. The, the photo has become kind of well-known because it's very dramatic. It, it shows these two Trump supporters who are part of the mob that day, almost looking as if they were are like guerrilla fighters or something like that. We use the picture because one of our state's newsroom affiliates, a, a, a sibling organization, the Colorado Newsline, where, where I work, a photographer, Alex Kent, working for the Tennessee Lookout, took that picture. And we've used it, and we weren't able to identify this father and son two members of the mob that day. But it turns out, just like within weeks, that they were identified as a father and son from Highlands Ranch in Colorado. And on top of that, what made it even more interesting for me, as part of going through all those videos, I was able to identify Sean Smith, a prominent election denier who's still still active here in Colorado. And I hope we could talk about him because he remains active with Mike Lindell and Joe Boltman. It turns out that in a video that demonstrate Sean Smith was part of the mob that day. This father and son, their names are uh, Dave and Christian Tyner, are in that very video. And I never knew that until the FBI announced um, uh, charges against them. So we're still learning a lot about that day, and we will continue probably for years. Do you, do you have do you have any theory of what uh, Chesbro was doing at the Capitol? Any idea at all? Do, do we do we know where that picture was taken? I assume it was outside the barricades or somebody would have mentioned that he was actually a rioter, right? Yeah, well, he, he was certainly um, part of the, the mob. As far as I've seen so far, there's no indication that he entered the Capitol. I could be wrong about that, but I right, haven't but, seen that. But as there far were as barricades. I he, he was in, it's been reported he was in the restricted area, but no evidence that he went in the Capitol. What we do know about... The video, and now it's pretty extensive, we can see him as he tagged along with Alex Jones and he was on his cell phone at various times recording, who knows, maybe tweeting with God knows who, maybe the boss, the guy who gave him an audience because he was a Harvard lawyer and wouldn't uh, the former president be impressed by that. But what I think is most important to show this plan is Alex Jones keeps saying one word over and over to stir people up. And I know this because I listened to you tell me this, Quentin Young, during our prior uh, encounter before we knew Chesbro was there. He kept yelling, 1776, 1776, which is exactly what Boebert tweeted that morning. It's 1776. Talk about that, Quentin. Well, I mean, 1776 for, for that circle of Trump supporters meant something very specific. I mean, I think I mean, in, in the way it's used, the context it's used, and the timing with which it's used, it very clearly, and it, it's, it's it, for Trump supporters, was a dog whistle to 
um, take direct action up to and including uh, on that day um, violence, a violent confrontation to um, stop the steal. And that was something else that Alex Jones was chanting that day, stop the steal, 1776. These all kind of meant the same thing to the thousands of Trump supporters who showed up that day uh, in the context of Trump already saying this is going to be wild, uh, during his speech at the Ellipse saying we have to fight, everybody knew what that meant. And, you know, anybody who, you know, school children who study the American Revolution understand that 1776 was a year of revolution, violent confrontation. So that's what it meant. With Cheesebro there, and that's the way he likes to pronounce his name, Cheesebro, not Chesbro. Cheesebro, and I'll give him that courtesy. But I also think he could be facing like 33 years, like Enrique Terrio, except Terrio wasn't even there. He was a proud boy, and he's about to get sentenced. Chesbro is in a heap of trouble. He's a Harvard guy, professor. What's he going to do? Who knows? I mean, he, I, I mean, I was surprised by that photo of him at the at the Capitol. I thought he was sitting there as a as a plotter with the Eastman, coming up with weird legal, unsupported legal theories to justify uh, uh, some action by Pence. But uh, uh, I, I, you know, I mean, as I say, we don't know of any cooperation by any of these guys. It's time. I mean, it's time for the, these prosecutors to say, uh, "What are you going to do?" Uh, this is this is. But, 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 but you know what right? you need? You need a trial date. You need a pressure point. And that's what they're trying to do. Right. That's where I right. hope for Judge Chutkin. I know all about that as a prosecutor. Cases don't settle until there are pressure points. But honest to God, Quentin, up in Boulder, Colorado, I had no idea what to do with my life. And then I encountered Professor Albert Al Schuler, who taught me criminal law my first semester, criminal procedure the next, and I thought, this is fascinating, the way this guy teaches it, and your class was outstanding, and I do remember you teaching about conspiracy, and I ended up teaching that subject at the Denver Police Academy for the better part of a decade, inchoate crimes, conspiracy, and you taught us how one part of the conspiracy doesn't need to know what the other part is doing, and yet they're still on the hook. Professor Al Schuler, you taught me conspiracy and inchoate crime law back in the day. How do you think these indictments work? Is it a fair application of the law? Oh, sure. I mean, you know, I mean, at least it's a cus I mean, if the law is fair at all, it's certainly a customary application of the law. You, uh, I mean, you do have the problem. I mean, you do have an issue of how big is the conspiracy? Was it all one conspiracy or were there several? And that turns out to be a challenging issue. But I think it's, you know, it's all alleged to be one big conspiracy. And I think that's going to fly. Yes, it was a, cr a criminal enterprise to steal an election. It's that simple. And if somebody did an overt act that wasn't lawful in pursuance of that, I think under Georgia law, you need to have two on your own. Then you're on the hook for everybody else. So Jenna Ellis from Colorado, she took part in trying to mislead the legislature, putting the arm on certain representatives, a host of other things. But she didn't actually go to Coffee County where they broke into the Dominion machine, yet she's on the hook for it. And is, isn't that the way RICO works? And it's sort of like conspiracy law, the way you taught it to me back at CU. Yeah, conducting the affairs of an enterprise through a pattern of racketeering activity. And these, so all of, the, all of these predicate acts are linked because they're part of the same enterprise. Okay, so how far does the conspiracy go? I know for complicity, you have to have an intent to promote or facilitate the commission of the crime, and then you have to aid, advise, or abet, which means to encourage it. And then there are things you can do to be an accessory after the fact. I've been thinking like a law professor. What about you? Uh, you know, the first target, of course, is Donald Trump. Let's take care of him. But afterwards, how many people are part of this? Well, it's, I think it's potentially an infinite number. I mean, and they're, and they're not going to charge all of them, right? I mean, 
uh, uh, Rudy Giuliani had somebody typing all of those uh, all of those phony uh, pleadings and so forth, and they're probably not going to go after the typist. No, don't um, do that. Right. Right. So, so um, you know, they, I mean, if if the typist was paid a premium and knew everything that was going on and was trying to further the enterprise, uh, she she or he might be uh, technically guilty, but you're not going to go after the typist. So, so, but and you got to. I mean, the prosecutors have a a devil of a job figuring out how i mean the, the, the georgia case they want to try all 19 defendants in the same same courtroom at the same time i mean that wouldn't be the world's record but that's a very difficult problem to manage and in in uh, washington they're probably going to invite uh, invite a lot more people how many trials are they going to have how many times is if mark meadows testifies is he going to how many courtrooms is he going to have to appear in one one in Georgia, three in Washington, and can he tell the same story uh, every time he tries to tell it? Um, All right, that's uh, where I have to step in, because I'm a senior now, too. I'm not that young kid you taught in class, and I spelled out the batting order in my Colorado Sun column. Everybody get out of Jack's way. He's going to do USA v. Trump in front of Judge Chutkin and do it fast. And then after that, the chips will fall where they may. How do you like that? Sounds good. I'll tell you from a uh, news perspective, uh, I'd love to see Tony Willis go first. I think uh, that would be, uh, well, first of all. Because it's going to be televised? Well, for a lot of reasons. I mean, that would be that would be one. And again, this is not from a, a legal perspective, but from a uh, news perspective. But even beyond that, just serving the public interest. Um, I think one problem we've had in grasping what what happened uh, as part of this conspiracy is that it all has been centered on Trump. And I think it's really important, although he was the ringleader, to understand that the crime goes way beyond Trump. Trump would not be able to have done January 6th without broad, wide support from a lot of different people. So you've got a lot of people indicted in Georgia. It's state charges, so you, you avoid you know, the, the prospect of uh, pardons. And you've got the unindicted, you've got 30 unindicted co-conspirators uh, who, by the way, uh, include people who can connect to Colorado. Uh, so, I mean, just, just from but that perspective. Glenn, so let me tell you, you, you're kind of in a dream world, and I'm not going to say the professor's in an ivory tower, but these things aren't that easy to put together. With uh, That's a monstrosity down there. And she put it forth in a talking indictment. So anybody who really wants to read it can read that. And then that's the purpose of our podcast and countless other great podcasts tackling this most important prosecution in the country. We need to explain it. You in the news media, look at Professor Al Schuler explaining it on Just Security. That's our job. But the main task now, is Donald Trump guilty in connection with January 6th? I trust Jack Stone, and I trust Judge Chutkin, and we have diversity here because I think, well, I know Professor Al Schuler even on our last episode, you lean left, you're from academia, what a great background, listen to that episode. Quentin, you were with the Boulder Daily Camera, I think you lean left, I was a hard-charging prosecutor. So you tell me, Professor Al Schuler, how fast is too fast if Judge Chutkin says on August 28th, you know what, Donald Trump, you're incorrigible. I can't stand living under this threat. This system of justice won't tolerate it. So we're going to shorten the time period before this trial. The law says 70 days in a federal court is your speedy trial right. Get ready because we're going to start picking a jury in December. And if you keep mouthing off, it'll be November and then October. Tell me what you think about that. Would that stand up in the appellate courts? Oh, sure. Um, I mean, I think so. I, the, I mean, the, the whole I mean, the whole story of this January 6th business is that the, our court system is a complete failure. Right. Right. I mean, the, you know, uh, Steve Bannon defies Congress two years ago and he's still walking around doing his podcast. No possible defense to, to that to that charge. Um, and uh and not, I mean, nothing moves quickly. Every, the, Donald Trump is playing a delaying game, and he's getting away with it. 
And, you know, you hear these people, experienced federal prosecutors talk on TV. I'm not, I'm not I mean, I was a federal prosecutor briefly uh, 50 years ago or something. But, but I mean, I, I, the, and they say, oh, you know, it's not possible to do one of these trials within a year. What? What kind of justice system takes a year to, to, to bring any of these cases to, to, uh, to trial? Um, so I think, you know, if, some, if somebody wants to take the bull by the horn, I mean, you know, the, the, uh, the Trump comes in and, and argues, look, I've got a million pages of discovery. And if I if I, you know, if I don't have till three years, I've got to uh, read a total of war and peace seven times in every day. Right. Until until the three years are up. But, well, maybe you don't need that much discovery. Maybe you can do electronic searches. You know, uh, it. it it, it's the system is just bogged down with with procedure and paper you want to give everybody every opportunity and it doesn't work uh, and it doesn't work for anybody I and mean, it doesn't it's not just the january 6th stuff that doesn't work it's a system that doesn't work for everybody so you you plea bargain everything you settle all the civil cases and uh trials you know here here we're going to ask the professor trial. i know you know what's a fun number here it's it's 11.6 million pages of discovery, which is kind of like 11,780 votes, which Trump said he wanted Raffensperger to find right away. So he wanted that to be speedy. It wouldn't take Raffensperger much time to find those votes, according to Trump. Anyway, Quentin, uh, I want to lay out some facts for the professor about Colorado potential conspirators. Jenna Ellis, uh, have you paid attention to her from your purchase outside Colorado. Have you, have you paid attention, Professor, to our less than esteemed Colorado attorney colleague, Jenna Ellis? She's she's indicted in Georgia, right? Yes, she I'm, is. Yeah. I um, warned her. No. Okay. I mean, she, she seems to have been sort of um, Giuliani's right-hand uh, partner in all of those frivolous right. lawsuits. She, right. she was a wannabe radio host, and she filled in for me occasionally because I liked her because she'd make fun of Trump. But then he complimented her once. She got all gushy. I wrote a Colorado Sun column about it on December 7th of 2020, saying Colorado lawyers should be better than Jen Ellis. The New York Times contacted me, and I was part of that uh, annotation of the indictment that elite strike force column. But Quentin Young, you've been following Jenna Ellis. Tell the world about what she's been doing, her role, and then tell people about Randy Corcoran, another radio lawyer wannabe. Yeah, uh, so Jenna Ellis, as far as I know, um, this year is no longer a Colorado resident, so that's probably something to note. She claims to have moved to Florida, uh, and I have no reason to doubt that. And she's um, a big but, Ron DeSantis booster for the last three months, which is why Trump may not pay her bills. Go ahead. Right, which uh, I guess will play into whether she's um, susceptible to flipping, and that's certainly something that we'll watch. But, um, you know, she has kind of like a minor record, a checkered record as a lawyer in Colorado, but did cut, catch the attention of Trump in uh, leading up to the election in 2020. And uh, she really came onto my radar because um, while she was doing the work with as a legal advisor uh, to Donald Trump and she was at Rudy Giuliani's side as they were going around state to state, including Georgia and Pennsylvania and I think Michigan and Arizona. Uh, she was often right there, certainly in Georgia. She was right there to smell Rudy. And boy, did she go ahead. <laughs> that, that was a that was a famous episode. Somebody has said she was a up. fart target, which isn't nice. Keep going. <laughs> yeah, uh, she she had that experience, and um, and she had she, him melt his hair dye right in front of her too. She yeah, was yeah, she, she's witnessed so many things. Yes, yeah, people can find photographs and videos of all this stuff that you're referring to. Uh, she really came onto my radar in uh, December of 2020 because, you know, we we kind of knew who she was because she was working with Trump. But she testified. She was, I think, the first witness in this now uh, infamous hearing at the uh, uh, Colorado State Legislature, and it was run by uh, then lawmaker Lori Sane. And it was about 
you know, essentially election integrity. And uh, it involved a lot of uh, testimony that, you know, touched on what we now know were fraudulent claims. And Jenna Ellis came on and testified and identified herself as, you know, Colorado resident and made claims not just about the national election, but also uh, Colorado elections. So that's where it kind of all started. And, you know, fast forward to earlier this year. And then, you know, I started wondering as, as the election fraud claims started bouncing back on lawyers throughout the country, I started wondering well, what's going to happen to Jenna Ellis here in Colorado. Cause she's, you know, of course, licensed to practice law in Colorado wondered if and, and, uh, anybody would take issue with that. And there was a complaint made filed with the, uh, Attorney Regulation Council. Attorney Regulation and the presiding judge of attorney discipline ended up censoring her this year for, I think it was 10 specific statements that she stipulated were, quote unquote, misrepresentations. So falsehoods. You know, I've seen her say here and there that she has not admitted to lying. But I mean, if you want to, you know, I think it's a semantic thing. She basically uh, admitted to spreading lies about the election and but she remains licensed to practice law in colorado and i do wonder if if that will be challenged again because of uh you know it, she's it, it, it might be and just to fill it in because jack smith said the conspiracy started on november 14th and i i knew geraldo well i listened to his interview recently he said he talked to trump on november 13th and the president seemed resigned to defeat but then he said to Geraldo, hey, have you heard about Dominion? And Geraldo said, no, what's Dominion? And then he went and looked it up, and then everybody was off to the races. But the people who heard about Dominion were the people listening to Conservative Daily Podcast on November 9th when Joe Oltman broke the news. He had infiltrated an Antifa call. But putting together other podcasts, he told his good friend Randy Corcoran on November 7th, Hey, look what I have. What should I do with it? Corcoran, another lawyer, Jenna, who I knew and worked with, she went on Dan Kaplan's show to yell, stop the steal, send your money here. And she had Dominion defamations. But it was Corcoran who put on the air this guy, Joe Altman. He was brought to AM radio in Denver and Peter Boyles and George Brockler to say, hey, I intercepted this call and this Eric Coomer guy of Dominion he said he was going to rig the election against Trump. Now, that may sound preposterous, but Eric Coomer had to move. He's brought a big lawsuit. The pleadings are uh, hyperlinked in my latest column. Those guys have done great work. But tell everybody what you know about uh, Randy Corcoran, Quentin. Yeah, well, you gave a, a good overview. He's a, a Republican National Committee man from Colorado, he is often he often represents um, right wing and Republican causes. Right um, now, he get this right professor now. John Eastman, your colleague, is a professor. He and Corcoran have been allotted a two hundred fifty thousand dollar budget to sue Jenna Griswold on behalf of the Colorado GOP so they can close their primaries. Talk about a good expenditure. Keep going, Quentin. Yeah, well, so you mentioned um, Eric Coomer, the Dominion executive who was uh, maligned uh, by Joe Altman, who made false claims about uh, Eric Coomer being involved um, with flipping the election. So Coomer has filed multiple suits against various figures who have made those claims. One is uh, the Trump campaign. Uh, Joe Altman is part of that case. Um, he also sued Mike Lindell, uh, who's a very important figure, I think, tying uh, a lot of these things that we're talking about together, including uh, particularly in Colorado. Uh, he also sued Randy Corcoran. Uh, an interesting thing is that Randy Corcoran is being sued by Eric Coomer in uh, a case against uh, uh, Gateway against Salem Gateway Media. Pundit. Gateway Pundit, and he represents uh, the owner, Jim Hoff, of that. Michelle Malkin also getting sued, the Trump campaign. It's quite a litigation right. in Denver District Court, and Tina Peters and Bobert are on the periphery. It's all kind of connected, and everybody's paying attention to other states with good reason. But Quentin Young, 
you wrote that column, Colorado Insurrectionists, and you said you wanted to bring up Sean Smith again. You know more about him than I do. What is he, a retired colonel, and he's connected to Oldman and Boebert? Tell everybody. Yeah, so uh, Sean Smith um, has kind of flown under the radar um, since uh, late 2020 when he started to do uh, election, what he calls election integrity work in Colorado. But he, he's connected. So right now, the important thing to know about Sean Smith is that he caught the attention of Mike Lindell, the My Pillow CEO, who's an ally of Trump and has, uh, through the last couple of years, funded and been very vocal about election integrity uh, causes. So he started this thing called Cause of America. Mike Lindell did. And Sean Smith from here in Colorado is the is the head of that. He leads the efforts uh, funded by Mike Lindell to go around the country and coordinate with other folks who are looking to, uh, who believe the election was stolen and are looking to either prove it or take action to, uh, in their minds, prevent uh, uh, another theft of an election next year. And I mean, just as, as, just for an example of how these efforts are continuing and they involve the same kind of people just Recently, I think within um, the last several weeks, there was an event, and there's lots of these events, but there was one in particular in the San Luis Valley. Monte Vista, Colorado. I have it hyperlinked in my column. I'll try to put it in the show notes, too. Keep going. Yeah, well, I think that really illustrates how this is continuing with the same people. So Randy Corcoran uh, kind of led the discussion. One of the panelists was Joe Oldman. Another panelist was Sean Smith. Another panelist was Dr. Frank, who uh, is another tie between a lot of the things that are going on, on around the country uh, in terms of trying to prove that the election was stolen and, and doing election work on behalf of MAGA in, in 2024. They were saying the same things, that the election was stolen. They were presenting the same kind of information about purported technical information about why this was possible and how they did it. You know, this they, who they, who they never really uh, identify very clearly. It, it might be China. It might be, you know, uh, this, this Soros-funded um, cabal or conspiracy around the world that's never really clear. But you know, I, On my they. last podcast, Corporan puts it on Germany. Something happened in Germany. You have to hear it. I play extended portions. But yeah, I, th- I think people are more than getting the gist of it. And Lindell's still active. He had a big event just this week. And who shows up? Tina Peters, accused felon in Colorado. Yeah, yeah, Tina Peters. And just, just as a sign of like how these aren't simply fringe characters, and if I'm not mistaken, uh, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton was, was part of that too, so people like that. Um, but, you know, what stands out to me, apart from like legal questions about culpability, I mean, that, that goes too, but w- what I hear when I listen to those things is, is the allusions to violence. Uh, Joe Altman at that event uh, you know, Joe Altman, by the way, it ca- has called for hangings, you know, executions, um, including of at one point the governor of Colorado. Um, at this event just a couple of weeks ago, th- this this person is not chastened by the threat of legal culpability or anything like that. And in fact, it might be just the opposite. He explicitly calls for the use of force, he, and he does this thing where he says. You know, I'm not calling for violence. As soon as he starts alluding to what everybody understands is a call for violence, he says, I'm not calling for violence, but everybody understands when he says we need to apply force. I mean, he uses that word. Sean Smith, you know, uh, repeatedly uses this dog whistle due process. And I think that comes from that event a couple of years ago where he got on stage and he he, he essentially suggested that somebody like Jenna Griswold, the Secretary of State in Colorado, should be hanged be, because she was res- partly responsible for uh, stealing the election. But he, he makes sure to say, after due process, people like that should be hanged. And so like he'll get on Twitter, for example, and say, Attorney General Phil Weiser deserves due process. 
the governor deserves due process. Jenna Griswold deserves due process. We all understand what he's saying, and it's and it's chilling to understand that there's that's still being said leading up to next year's election. We're going we're heading into another this isn't behind us. We're heading into a new year where those kinds of that kind of rhetoric and the fight for democracy is very much in play. I am a glutton. I watched Donald Trump at the Iowa State Fair. He stood next to Matt Gates, who started talking his usual trash, but added this choice violent line. Nothing can be accomplished in Washington, D.C. without the use of force. And there was Trump. Some said he nodded his head, whatever. He's out on bail. Then I listened to Lauren Boebert. You can hear it for yourself. Friday on Dan Kaplis, my former radio partner. And in the middle of talking about something else, she repeats that line by Matt Gates, talking about all her legislative accomplishments. She slips in, you know, Dan, nothing can be accomplished in Washington, D.C. without force. And I'm so, holy cow. And Dan either didn't hear it or ignored it. Let's move on to a guy who's explicit about violence and get back to the professor, like a Steve Bannon or an Alex Jones who whip it up daily and keep spreading this big lie bullshit. They're clearly encouraging, aiding uh, their accessories after the fact. I think they were accomplices during. Please tell me culpability stretches to those two. Well, probably does, but I don't know if we can prove it. I mean, the, the one interesting thing is that Bannon on uh, December on January fifth has an eleven-minute conversation with Trump. Nobody knows what was said. They know there was this conversation, and then he gets on his podcast and he says, "Hey guys, it's going to be uh, even more wild than you think tomorrow, January sixth. Uh, strap in. It's not going to be what you expect." I mean, he he has been told uh, by the president of the United States that what the plan is for for january 6th and it's not the not what you're going to expect and he uses all kinds of violent uh, imagery and we're we're probably never going to know what that phone call was about but it would be good to uh, have have bannon in prison where he belongs uh for the the, the crimes uh, that he's been convicted for the crime that he's been convicted of which might put a little more pressure on him to uh, uh come up with and, and and talk about what he knows you're not sounding like that liberal professor I once knew. How much time should Bannon be sentenced to? I, well, I think the maximum is is a year in prison or something. So. Oh well, that's just on his current charge. But but it, we, we got a charge. Like the guy even before election day said Trump's going to declare victory regardless. He's in on it. I think it can be proved if we can get into the Willard Hotel. And I trust Jack Smith. What do you know about that guy, Professor? Does he have the goods or is he a blank slate for you? I've learned a good deal about him from talking with uh, the chief justice department reporter for the Wall Street Journal. Her name is Sadie Gurman. My last episode, she's there every day. She knows Merrick Garland. He calls her Sadie. Anyway, what do you know about Jack Smith? You're in those highfalutin circles. Less, less than you do. I mean, he's, he's certainly got a, an excellent reputation as a prosecutor, but that's about all I know. He did I mean, say he seems, uh, he, yeah. I like the indictment. I think he's done a good job. I mean, he's obviously done a, a good job of putting this case together. Is this the most important case in American history? Yeah, for sure. I, I think so. Beats O.J. Simpson. Boy, did you write great about that. If you want to hear a great episode about how Dersch and Professor Alshuler had a bit of a falling out over the OJ case, go back and listen to that. Because Dersch used to come to our classrooms, and I talk about my night with him one-on-one uh, -on -one at the Paramount Theater, packed in Denver. I'm really disappointed in him. Do you want to say anything more about him? It seems like he's ready to be a Trump defender. Once again, um, I, I, I mean, I still think Alan is a person of integrity, but it, it, uh, I mean, he's certainly taken some very weird positions. So, anyway, Quentin Young, that's been fascinating. Let me uh, just turn it over to you on this Colorado insurrectionist angle. You keep following up, and uh, who do you think we're missing? And if we go back to the episode when you wrote that article. I gave you a little grief for not making Jenna Ellis top 10. Do you feel bad about that now? 
<laughs> I mean, there's so many to choose from. You bump somebody out and, you know, you feel like it should be a top 20 or maybe a 30. Yeah, J- Jenna Ellis, obviously. I mean, John Eastman, you know, he, he has a little bit more. I think he lives in Santa Fe. He lives in New Mexico, but he has a little bit more of a connection to Colorado than simply having served as a visiting scholar during the time of uh, him also writing the coup memo and trying to overturn the government or the election. He, he He's here frequently or somewhat frequently visiting on various purposes. And of course, he with, I don't know if we mentioned this, he's one of the lawyers on that case that you mentioned that Randy Corcoran is representing the Colorado GOP suing Jenna Griswold over uh, primaries. But he he's like, you know, it, when you look at the select committee's final report about January 6th, I, I think you can safely say that uh, aside from Donald Trump, John Eastman uh, bore more culpability than anybody in in the overall uh, plot. So you have that, you know, in terms of like other connections between, you know, people who have their hands in Colorado and other efforts to subvert elections. Patrick Byrne is, is somebody else um, uh, trying to pay more attention to because he, we already knew that he had, and, you know, think think about what happened in Coffee County. That happened in, I think, as far as we know, basically three states. And Colorado was one of them. Michigan, there were three counties in Michigan where some Trump reporter, uh, supporters got together with uh, illegally or improperly took voting equipment and made copies. So, so there's three states where that happen. And in Colorado, it doesn't get a lot of attention because Mesa County was so dramatic, but it also a similar thing happened in Elbert County with the county clerk, uh, then county clerk, Dallas Schrader, where he and we mentioned Sean Smith, Sean Smith and another person helped that clerk improperly copy information off a Dominion voting machine. Dallas Schrader is now a county commissioner in, in Elbert County. So has even more authority in in that county. Uh, But Patrick Byrne, it appears, might play a role. So we know Patrick Byrne knew what was going on in Mesa County. He claims to have been FaceTiming with a a former pro surfer named Conan Hayes, who it's alleged was the actual person who was in the building at the Mesa County Elections Office uh, copying information off Tina P- clerk, then clerk, Tina Peters election systems. Well, Conan Hayes turns up in Coffee County, uh, Georgia. Patrick Byrne, some have speculated, uh, including Ryan Goodman at, at Just Security, speaking of Just Security, that he's he's potentially one of the unindicted 30 co-conspirators. So that's another connection we're following up on. Um, but- it sounds like this this voting machine tampering has got to be a, a clear violation of uh, Colorado election law. Is anybody pursuing it? Any yes. Of the authorities? Dan yeah. Rubenstein, the uh, DA in Mesa County, who's been at Craig's Lawyers Lounge, Cherry Creek High graduate. He's prosecuted Tina Peters. It's stuck on appeal. Harvey Steinberg, who I've known forever, used to represent Tina Peters. He recently got off the case. Back to the Coomer v. Uh, Trump and Rudy and Corbin and all that, uh, there have been revelations there through depositions of Joe Altman that Patrick Byrne was apparently in Washington at the critical time asking Rudy Giuliani about getting a pardon. So there's another Colorado connection. And one more thing, Hugh Hewitt lived here for a little while at Colorado Christian, they built a studio for him. He was going to be a guest, this or that. That's where Jenna Ellis is a trustee, something like that. She kind of worked there, then they let her go. Anyway, she has an affiliation with Colorado Christian. And Hugh Hewitt used to always have on his regular segment of his popular Salem show, The Smart Guys, with two brilliant law professors, one of them, Erwin Shemerinsky. I bet you know him, Professor Al Schuler. And the smart guy on the right was John Eastman. And they'd go at it sort of like a panel show. I just want to throw it back to you, Professor. I mean, because this guy was, for better or worse, 
part of CU like you once were? He he did the same thing for a living, kind of as you did. Is it what? What do you make of that? How does it feel? Well, uh, <laughs> I I mean there, you know, all of these people are lawyers, part of our profession, uh, Craig, um, and it doesn't make you feel good, right? It's, uh, I mean, these. I know, but you guys say you guys are supposed to be super smart. You've got all the intelligence. Oh, I You're think, a big time law professor. John Eastman is, and, and Cheeseboro are are probably very smart. Um, uh, I mean, they were both those. Were they both Supreme? I, I don't know. I guess uh, Eastman was a was a Clarence Thomas clerk. Um, and he worked Chesbro. for Ludwig. For Ludwig, who is stepping up big time. I don't want to ask you about that. Is is Trump even eligible to run for president again? No, clearly not. <laughs> I mean, just read Section Three of the Fourteenth Amendment. Uh, <laughs> if you take if you've taken an oath and you. Uh, 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 aid and abet an insurrection. You are not eligible. And any uh, any uh, any uh, election official who's figuring out who's to be on the ballot uh, has to take account of whether the candidate is qualified. Uh, and uh, it, it seems you know there, there's this piece uh, uh, coming out in the Pennsylvania Law Review by a University of Chicago professor and and a, and a, and a St. Thomas uh, professor. Um, uh, you know, members, good members of the federal society, um, that make that case that other people have been making for for quite a while, uh, and it's it's quite it's quite clear. I mean, then then of course it's going to the Supreme Court. I mean, after after some election official says yes or no, there will be a lawsuit uh, challenging the election official's decision. There will be a judicial hearing. It will move, I think, quickly to the Supreme Court, and nobody knows what the Supreme Court will do. Well, I, I, have an, I, I have an idea what Clarence Thomas will do. Keep going. Go, Quentin, your turn. And Alita. Well, I, 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 had, I, had, I was hoping 14-3 uh, would come out because I've written a little bit about that because there's some indication that there might be, uh, well, there's an effort to get Secretary of State Griswold here in Colorado to invoke Section 3 of the 14th Amendment uh, unilaterally. But my understanding is that the, there's basically two big questions about enforcing that one is it self-executing or do you need Congress to basically, you know, create a mechanism by which local officials like a secretary of state can enforce it. And two, the section doesn't specifically name the presidency as one of the offices that, that it applies to either uh, triggering the, uh, the clause or an office you can go into. I wonder if you have any thoughts. Yeah, those are, those are both, uh, uh, serious issues i think but but not not really that difficult i mean the main difficulty about whether it's self-executing is a, an opinion by uh chief justice uh, chase uh, shortly after the statute was uh, uh enacted that says no it's not i mean it's it's, it's you need congressional action what these uh, uh scholars say is that's just plainly wrong read the thing right um and it is it does seem seem plainly wrong it seems they have no foundation at all but i I mean, it certainly it certainly is precedent, and it has to be uh, has to be dealt with. And there, and I mean, yes, there is uh, writing about uh, whether um, the president is one of these is one of these offices. But good grief! I'm, I mean, the president of the United States is a, is a, an official of the United States. Sure, he is. And if you think about the fact that um, which president was it who who um, went to the went to the confederacy was you know, became a confederate uh, official and then was elected to congress uh after the war but and i mean the whole point of this was to throw that guy out right and throw and throw other people like him out i think i think there's you, you plainly include the president how appropriate to try to get back at those bigots who wanted to come back and be part of the union the guys who wanted slavery and now the Klan Act is being used by Jack Smith, and that's a beautiful thing because, to me, MAGA represents a whole lot of bigotry. What's going on here that you guys would give up your Sunday afternoons to talk to me, write these articles, go through all those January 6th tapes? Al Franken, who does a podcast, was his senator. He, he says it's fascism, and he resisted saying that for a long time. And it's another word I really didn't understand, like stochastic terrorism. And I'd 
course, heard about the Nazis, didn't really quite grasp fascism. Is that what it is, Professor? I don't know what fascism is. I mean, it was an Italian system of, of socialism. I don't know. I mean, I think it, I think it's currently used to to just say, you know, you can't say Nazism, so you say fascism. It's authoritarianism, right? <laughs> right? Authoritarianism. Yeah, it's it's right, and it's. I mean, it, it's it it conjures up racism and uh, uh, end of democracy and uh, you know other other bad things. Um, but I don't know how to define it. So that's why you do it. You're a do-gooder. After all these years, you turn out to be a do-gooder. What do you mean? I've always been a do-gooder. I know, but uh, but now you're advocating for arrest, prosecution, throw their ass in jail. I mean, you're worked up. Oh, sure. I mean, I, I, and so are you, and so are, so are all right-thinking Americans, right? I mean, this is... Uh, That's the soundbite I'm it, looking This for. is intolerable, right? It is. Quentin, close us out. Well, um, boy, I wish I could end on a happy note, but, um, I, you know, thinking about the indictments, I, I, I realize that really this is not, you know, when you, when, you know, you charge and you convict a criminal, an everyday criminal, the best the system works and you put the person in jail or whatever the sentence is. But these indictments are about something so much bigger than, than crimes. Uh, they're, they're about, you know, constitutional order, the survival of democracy, sustaining the government that the founders put in place. And it just really it's dismaying to see so many Americans support a person who so clearly tried to and is trying to subvert all that. And not just that, but is the is running neck and neck for the presidency is by far, without a doubt, the leading and almost certain candidate for a major political party. Um, and the percentage of, of Republicans who trust elections is, uh, a poll just came out, I think it's something like, it's just over 20%. That's a problem. If Trump is convicted and sentenced in every single one of these cases, we're still going to be left with a country that's miserably divided. And I guess to, to bring it around to that, you know, there are people who understand that these, uh, these were crimes that there is a conspiracy, that the conspiracy was based on lies, and we have something worth fighting for and worth trying to preserve. It's not gone yet. Let's preserve it. I just feel we need one upbeat note from history, Colorado history. And it was a great guest, Ellen Prendergast, who wrote about a Denver DA, Phil Van Size, who had to defeat organized crime that was wrecking Denver 100 years ago. And right after that, the Klan, the Klan not overtook over the Denver courthouse. They got the mayor's job. They got the governor's job. They had the senators. But after these guys self-destructed, and I think Trump is self-destructing, it was a spasm. And by 1926 or so, those guys were gone. They ended up in federal prison. And Colorado thrived to the point we could have people like Quentin Young and Albert Alshuler come and visit us and stay for a while. Quentin's here forever. Professor, you got to come back pretty soon. Anytime. I love Colorado. I love still this miss it show. Every, I still miss it every day. Thanks, you fellas. Thanks, Quentin. Thanks, Prop. Thanks, Craig. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye now. Michael Bailey, a friend a lawyer, a sponsor. Tell everybody how you bring peace of mind to their life. So by setting up your estate plan, you know what's going to happen to your stuff when you die. You know where it's going to go, you know who's going to get it. We've got everything in place so we're not running to a court to try to get guardianship and conservatorship as quickly as possible. But then it's an orderly proceeding of things. So, you know, there's already enough chaos with the medical emergency, but the legal part of it and who can make decisions is all outlined. It's all set up. So there's, it's like the the smooth transition of power. That's cool because you can avoid so many problems by having a medical power of attorney and discussing it with a smart guy like Michael Bailey, because who should have this? It's probably somebody close 
Who do you trust most among your children to make that call? These are the hard and good questions that you ask every day, right, Michael? Right, and if you ask them beforehand, when you're not in the middle of a crisis, then when a crisis hits, we're not trying to do crisis management and medical emergency and everything else. We're going, okay, we've got a smooth transition of power here. We've got a smooth who's in charge, and we can have that all flow so that we can focus on the care. There are so many things in life that you can fill out a form and save yourself money, save yourself heartache. Some people die out of nowhere quickly, but more often you get sick, you have medical difficulties, so it all goes together. But your system works, it works beautifully. What is the best way to contact you these days? Best way, uh, you can give me a call. My phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. Or you can go online to michaeldailylawllc.com. And there is a an appointment page on my website that you can use. So either way is fine. Thanks, Michael. Hey, what a show. I hope you liked it. Please subscribe, go back and listen to some of the shows referenced, episode 110 with Professor Al Schuler, 64 and 83 with Quentin Young. You can hear 63 before that. George Brockler explains Joe Oltman. Hmm, go through that. We are trying to give you the Colorado connections to the biggest cases in American history. Funny how AM radio doesn't want to talk about it, but we will. For the foreseeable future, Monday mornings, 8 a.m., the regular show is Saturday mornings, 9 a.m., Colorado time. Thanks for listening. Tell a friend, subscribe, share. Until next time, bye. That's the show. We hope you liked it. Please subscribe. Tell your friends. Leave a five-star review. Thanks for listening.